Baseball Tonight, the podcast. This is the Baseball Tonight podcast for Tuesday, September 14th, 2021. And today will be better than yesterday. Although for the San Francisco Giants, yesterday was pretty good. Producing from his home studio in the foothills of Connecticut is Taylor Schwenk. I'm Buster Only, working from my home studio in New York. Today is a big day. The debut of the documentary on the 1986 Mets. I've seen it. It's really fun. It's honest. It's awesome. 30 for 30, Once Upon a Time in Queens, airs tonight, 8 p.m. on ESPN. And today on the podcast, we will air our interview that we did last week with a cog on that team, slugger Daryl Strawberry, who has a lot of observations about key guys on that team, key moments, where he was when they had the Game 6 comeback. And we continue the discussion, which was the better team in Strawberry's eyes, his 86 Mets or his 1998 Yankees? Well, last night, here's what it sounded like for the Giants. Here's Castro. He pitches. Strike three ball a fastball down the middle at the belt. This game is over. The Giants have won their eighth in a row, and they have clinched a berth in the postseason. The great John Miller on KNBR with that call right there. Yeah. And the Giants clinched the playoff spot, and they celebrated with champagne. We talked about that yesterday with Tim Kirchin. He said he was old school. He wouldn't celebrate with champagne. But the Giants did in a season in which they are clearly the biggest surprise in baseball. Meanwhile, the team chasing the Giants in National League West, they had future Hall of Famer Clayton Kershaw on the mound. Here he comes with a 2-2 pitch. And he got him with a curve again. Mastering Nick Ahmed with the breaking ball so far tonight. Up comes Clayton Kershaw. This can be a tough play. They got no play, and he's got an infield hit. Yeah, so Clayton Kershaw pitched well, 13 outs, allowed only one run, uh, and he also got that infield hit. Here was Clayton Kershaw after the Dodgers 5-1 to win. There's not a lot of better feelings in the world than getting to pitch here and getting to win. Um, it's, it's, it's a special thing. So I missed it. It was, uh, it was good to be back. And uh, we got a win today, and everything, everything worked out. It was good. In the National League wildcard race beneath the Giants and Dodgers for now, the surging Cardinals faced the Mets on Monday, and Adam Wainwright was great, supported by Paul Goldschmidt. The 1-1, Goldschmidt swings, hits it deep, left center field, to the track, the wall, it's a gunner! A leadoff home run for Goldschmidt in the fifth inning. 3-0 Cardinals at City Field. Home run number 25 for Goldie. John Rooney on the Cardinals radio network. The Cardinals win that game 7-0. In the American League wildcard race, the Blue Jays just keep on pounding Vladimir Guerrero Jr. moves into the lead of Major League Baseball in home runs. There's a swing and a shot up the left field line, screaming into the corner, and it's gone! A frozen rope right up the line and over the wall and left. There's a new home run leader, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. with number 45. That from Sportsnet 590, the fan Toronto wins that game over Tampa Bay 8-1. to Now, Monday morning, the Yankees announced the big change. Shortstop Glaber Torres is being moved to second base indefinitely. With D.J. LeMahieu shifting to third and Gio Urshela taking over as the primary shortstop, 
We'll be talking with Sarah Langs about that coming up. The Yankees had a makeup game against the Twins in the middle of the afternoon, and they fell behind four to nothing in the top of the first inning. But in the bottom of the eighth inning, Aaron Judge came to the plate with a couple runners on base. The 2 1. Judge drives it. Ryan Rucco on the Yes Network with that call, and the Yankees ended it in the bottom of the ninth. Sanchez rips that to left field, a base hit. Torres rounding third. That will do it. A much-needed walk-off win in the Bronx, and Sanchez ends it, and the Yankees win it in dramatic fashion. I said it was the ninth inning. It was the tenth inning. The two teams had uh, gone to extras. Here was Aaron Judge after the game. It's a roller coaster, you know, but you got to enjoy the ride. You know, that's when you're on a roller coaster, you got to enjoy it. And, um, you know, it's, it's not over yet, you know, so I'm excited. Um, you know, down in the stretch, you know, this is a fun part of the year. It's a fun time of the year. And um, just keep riding it and ride it through the playoffs. The Red Sox hope that Chris Sale comes back from the COVID list this weekend. And boy, they need him in Seattle last night, Boston. The Mariners tied two all seventh inning after an error by Kyle Schwerber at first base. Two runners on for the Mariners, Mitch Hanniger. The pitch. Swung on, high drive, left field. Going back for Dugo on the track. Going back. Bye-bye. Three-run homer, Mitch Hanniger. And the Mariners have a 5-2 lead over the Boston Red Sox with two outs, bottom of the seventh. Dave Sims with that call at the end of the night after the Mariners won Five teams in the American League within three and a half games of each other in the race for the two wild card spots. Taylor, what you got? All right, Buster. A couple things. Obviously, NFL Week One is in the books. Hit up Fantasy Focus Football for all of those waiver wire pickups. You've got the ESPN College Football Podcast that you can listen to wherever you get your podcast. We're five days a week on that one Sunday through Thursday, and also Season Two of Better Days, Mike Greenberg Show on ESPN Plus. Check that out too. We're driven by the search for better. When it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of the show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash Buster. Just go to Indeed.com slash Buster right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash Buster. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. For the ones who get it done, Granger offers high quality supplies and solutions for every industry, as well as access to product specialists who have the knowledge and experience to answer your toughest questions. Plus, 
Their commitment to being your safety partner can help you keep your facilities safe and your people safer. Call, click Granger.com, or just stop by. Darrell Strawberry played 17 years in the big leagues, and eight of those were with the team that drafted him first overall, 1980. And with the release of this new documentary on the 1986 Mets, he's joining us to talk about that team. Darrell, how you doing? I'm doing good, Buster. Thanks for having me. It's been a long time since I got a chance to catch up with you. Man, I always love to talk with you, Straw. I got a chance, of course, to cover you one year with the Yankees. And I've always been fascinated by this. You, you know, I've asked you about this a couple of times, but I think it's worth reminding uh, folks how you feel about this. Because, as you, you know, the 98 Yankees are considered to be, uh, by a lot of people, including myself, to be the greatest team of all time. But you're in a unique position to compare the 86 Mets with the 98 Yankees. And you believe the 86 Mets were the better team. Well, when I compare, you know, head, head to head, you've got to, got to look at it back then, 98, you know, I was a little older, but when 86, I was younger and we had a lot of young talent on the 86 Mets. And, and I think the team, I, I think they're just alike. Um, you just never know who would win. And a lot of times people say, who do you think will win? I said the 86 Mets because I think of our rotation, our pitching staff, not that the 98 Yankees pitching staff wasn't good. I just think uh, our pitching staff was a little bit different, a little bit better um, than those guys were at the time of playing with the 98 Yankees. We had a phenomenal team with the 98 Yankees. I mean, it's a head-to-head thing, you know. It, it would be a battle, just put it like that. <laughs> <laughs> I'm curious. I thought about this, and I, I, I guarantee you have thought about this because you guys came so close to losing that World Series in 86. If Boston had won game six, what would the legacy, what would have happened with this team? The legacy of that team would have been probably torn apart, you know, I think because I think it was a time to win that year more than anything because we came into spring training after losing in 84 to the Cubs and 85 to the Cardinals. And we came into spring training and we just knew that we had had a team that probably would be able to beat anybody. And Davey said that, you know, the beginning of spring training, um, our first meeting was, you know, we're going to win it all. And we just kind of looked around at each other and thought, yeah, we're going to win it all. And we went out and we just kind of ran away with the division that year, the Eastern division that year. And um, when you look back, we played the Cardinals early in the year and, you know, Whitey Herzog said, you know, they're going to win it all. And, um, you know, I just remember that coming out. He he just kind of tipped his hat to us at the beginning of the season because he saw how good we were. My sense of, and I was thinking about this this morning, getting ready to talk to you, that among individual teams in, in recent baseball history, that your 86 team might be among the most beloved teams by its fan base that we've ever seen. Like, people love the 86 Mets. Why do you think there was such a connection? I, I think it was because of the chemistry of who we were and the charismatic kind of personalities that we had, I think, was just really fun for baseball. And I think we, I think a lot of people didn't see that in a very long time, especially Mets fans, you know, they had waited for a very long time to see a team come back to Queens and be able to play like that, but also have personality swagger. Um, everybody hated us. You know, we, you know, our curtain calls were incredible. Um, you know, I think teams disliked us because we got curtain calls and we'd come out and throw our hands up and everything like that. And it was different. It was a different flavor of baseball back in those days. And, and I think why we're so beloved is because of the chemistry of that team. You know, that team st- st- stood together. 
You know, and that's what you don't see a lot in baseball teams today that, that knows how to stand together. Uh, it wasn't about one particular player. You know, it was about a group of guys uh, that loved coming to the ballpark and, and we were fire. You know, we were fire. We didn't play. We we would fight. You know, we, we would do whatever it took, you know, to make sure you understood we were the Mets and we were, we, were, we play in Queens and we represent New York. And, and I think that's why our fans are loved us so much. And I think when we traveled on the road, we were like, we were like a rock star group, you know, coming into town to play. Um, everybody was just, you know, really crazy about the, you know, the kind of players we had. Yeah, no question. Uh, and I got to say that in watching the first part of that documentary, uh, it struck me that you guys were like a combination of the Chicago Bulls and the Detroit Pistons, uh, as you say, like rock star. But on the other hand, you guys were like the bad boys, <laughs> the Pistons later in, in sort of how you were viewed by other teams because you came to kick asses. No question about it. We were bad boys. Um, like I said before, you, you couldn't push us over. You know, you couldn't. We were going to put our foot on the top of your head. You know, that's just the way we were. That's the way we thought. Uh, you didn't want to mess with us. We had some really tough guys over there and we didn't like a lot of other teams. That's one thing, you know, about our baseball team that year. I remember we used to sit in the dugout. And the team would jump out earlier in the ball game on us, and they think they have two or three runs ahead of us, and they'll be high fiving like they got the game one. And we used to sit over there and say, "They have no clue. We were going to come back and kick their behind," and 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 we did, you know, because that's exactly what we knew about ourselves. We knew how good we were, you know. It wasn't like we're down three runs. Uh oh, how do we get back into this ball game? We were like, "We're going to get back in this ball game." And then we, we, we sit over there in the dugout talk about, okay, boys, it's time to go. Let's get going. And that's what happened. When we decided to get going, we could just turn it on. And then when we turn it on, we, we was going to come back and win that ball game. So, yeah, teams really knew not to mess with us because they knew where the toughness of us was real. And I think people around the league started to recognize that, that you know, these guys are bad, man. They, they, they fight, they do everything, um, but they play well, you know, and I think, I think the key what why teams hated us because we we're so good fundamentally. When you see baseball today, you don't, and you seen ba- baseball back in those days, you can't compare any team that was fundamentally sound just like we were because we did all the little things right. And I think that started from the the fact of who we was, Buster, in spring training. We worked so hard on our fundamentals to be the best at what we could do what we needed to do to make the plays when we need to make the plays. And we did that. We did that that whole year in 1986. So the best documentaries uh, are those that establish the people uh, and the backgrounds and the personalities. And that's what part one did. And, you know, Stra, I've known you a long time. I've never seen you uh, in an interview, stare into a camera and talk about the violence that you experienced as a kid in your household uh, with your father but more so, and then what really stuck with me was the emotional abuse where you have a father telling you that, you know, you're never going to accomplish anything. Um, you know, how emotional was it for you to, you know, to do that interview and think back at that time? And, and what was the impact of that on you? Well, the interview was great for me because uh, I'm free from that. And I've been free from that for, for a very long time. And there was a time that I wasn't free from that and the bondage of who I was as a player. I was carrying that weight every time I played baseball, every time I hit home runs, every time I did something great, running around the bases, the fans were cheering for me. And I used to think to myself, I'm nothing because my father had 
said that, you know, so many times over and over that I would never amount to anything. And I used to, you know, I truly believed that when I was playing. And it wasn't until later on in my years of life when I would get free from that. And, and I would go through a healing process. And I think a lot of times, you know, a lot of people never reach that place in their life. And I think it was something that I just needed to share for people to bring some hope to other people to show them that you can, you know, overcome those things in your life. Because a lot of times we have these uh, lifestyles of living and everybody acts like we have the white picket fence and we have it all together. And that's, that's not a real reality, Buster. You know, I, I think a lot of times, you know, so many homes are dysfunction and so many people go through so many dif uh, difficult times and they're never able to share about them. But, you know, me today to be able to share about, you know, who I was and what I went through, I think is incredible to be able to help somebody else to understand that you're okay to be able to talk about your pain. Um, because eventually your pain could turn into your victories in life. I didn't realize until I watched the the documentary, uh, the degree of pressure that you felt and it was put upon your shoulders as you moved into the big leagues, like strawberry save our franchise. Is that the way that it felt uh, after your first couple of days of uh, euphoria? It did. It really did. You know, as a young player and, and expectations uh, were high on me coming up and it was a lot of pressure but i'm grateful for um jim fry you know because jim fry made me under understand what it was going to take to be a major league baseball player and i was so grateful that i had him in my rookie season because i came to the ballpark late and one time he was there waiting for me and, and he just looked at me and got in my face and says he was so short and he just looked up at me and he says i'm never going to wait for you again if you ever want to be a great baseball player and play at this level and be successful, you need to be at this ballpark early every day. He says, it's never going to happen again. I'm never going to wait. And I realized from that day forward, I would come to the ballpark early every day and he would work me, not just on hitting, but work me on outfielding and all different type of things in all aspects of the game um, that turned me into a major league baseball player. I go on to run rookie of the year and then I go on to eventually contact him before he passes away and tell him, Thank you so much for helping me become the Major League Baseball player that I became because of you. So the pressures were great playing in New York. They're going to always be great. Players need to be careful what they ask for when you play in New York because New York fans are real. Um, they have passion. Met fans are great. They have passions. And when you suck, they're going to let you know that. And I experienced that, the highs and lows. But they were able to make me the player that I had became as a, as a Met when I spent those days over in Queens. In watching the documentary, Keith Hernandez is portrayed as uh, the leader who kind of ushered a, a group of young players along. Uh, how did you view him at age 24? I thought Keith was incredible. I thought his knowledge and his wisdom that he had uh, of the game was uh, far greater than anybody uh, that I ever been around playing baseball before. Um, uh, just just understanding the game the way he understood the game, hitting, fielding, um, just playing and just to true professional about how you go about your business. And, and, and he taught me so many things. I just remember how, you know, when I was struggling against left-hand pitching, I remember him teaching me how to like hit the ball the other way and how to get deeper in, in the batter's box when one is throwing hard and get up in the batter's box when one is throwing off-speed pitches so you'd be able to catch him. So it made such a difference in, you know, me becoming a better hitter against left-hand pitching, understanding you know, who I was facing. So he, he was always there to help and guide and teach the younger players. And, and it was, it, it was incredible to be able to, like I said before, to be able to have someone like that around you 
that has such great um, knowledge about the game. Uh, watching the doc, it uh, the documentary reminded me of the absolute beauty of Dwight Gooden's delivery. You know, <laughs> back at that time, and, and it, it, it's funny you see you see different players from old uh, highlights, and you think uh, for the most part, boy, the, those guys were in, you know they weren't as good athletes as we see today. But like I watch Ron Guidry pitch from like 1970s, you're like that guy was a phenomenal athlete, and Dwight Gooden with that delivery unbelievable. What do you remember about the first time you saw him throw? I was like, wow, you know, this kid is 19 years old. You know, when we first saw him in spring training, it was like, yes, he's 19 years old. And, and you know, has such great command and poise on, on the mound. Uh, and when I say great command, he had great command of his breaking ball. He could throw it at any time and he can pinpoint his fastball, you know, inside, outside, up, wherever he needed to throw it, you know, he could throw it. And, you know, when I saw that and realized that he was probably going to be in the big leagues with us, we knew from there that the organization was moving in the right direction because now they were starting to uh, develop their younger players. And I think that was the greatest gift of the Mets organization when I when I came up in 83 and then saw Doc in 84 and started seeing the development of young players coming to the big leagues. I, I, I knew then that we were going to be pretty good. We were going to be something very special as a team because we had young talent blended in with some of the vet players, you know, that was all that had been in the big leagues and had great experience. And that would be able to help us and mold us and show us how to play at that level. What was your relationship with Gary Carter? Keith Hernandez talked about him before he joined the Mets as being one of the most disliked players in the league because the perception he was, would seek out cameras. What was your relationship though with him? uh, Once you got in the same clubhouse, I had a great relationship with Carter. Uh, I, I, I thought very highly of him. Um, I knew he was a phenomenal player all those years he played with Montreal. Um, but I didn't really quite understand how great he was until he came over with us and the man he was. It was just so different. You know, it was such an example of what a man's supposed to be like, how you're supposed to live your life, how you're supposed to uh, love playing baseball. But, you know, he loved his faith. He loved God and he loved his family, you know. And you didn't see a lot of that when I first came up to the big leagues. I, I, I saw that in him. I saw him you know, close to his family, his wife and his kids and, you know, his faith. And he, you know, he just never struck me as anyone that was mad or angry with anybody. He was always a happy person. I was like, there's no way. How could you be that happy? You know, and I just realized that Gary, Gary was, Gary lived a free life. You know, he, he wasn't consumed with any of the earthly things. He wasn't consumed with the fame. You know, I think people thought he was more crazy about the cameras. Yeah. He liked the cameras because he was happy, you know, and I realized that that's why he liked the cameras because he was a happy person. He wanted to express himself to people and show people that life is really happy. It's not all, you know, that we all make it to be in baseball where there's a lot of pressure. I didn't see Gary play with pressure. I saw him play with joy. It's funny you say that, Straw. Uh, Mike Trout, as you know, is now considered to be the best player in baseball. And a lot of people in my field will complain to me and, and they'll say, boy, Trout is really boring. And I always say, he's not boring. He's happy. <laughs> he doesn't complain <laughs> yeah. about it. He just loves to play, right? Yeah, and that was Gary that, Carter. That was kids. You know, kids just love to play. He showed up every day and he was happy. And, you know, you could see it on his face all the time. And you, you, and you could see some guys coming to the ballpark struggling, you know, with the heaviness of, you know, and, and the slump. And, you know, even with kid being in a slump, he would press through it. You know, he would press through it with joy and, you know, that's what it's supposed to be about, you know, because you only get one shot at it. He was a prime example of one shot of what it 
what it's like to live a major league baseball player life and have joy in your life at the same time. I, I, I couldn't, I didn't see anyone have more joy than I saw a kid have every day. I got a couple more for you. Walk me through the moments, your moments in that famous game six of the 86 world series. Uh, to, you know, Keith Hernandez makes an out there, two outs and tell me where you were physically and what you remember moment to moment before the winning run scores. I was in the clubhouse and um, I think um, in the manager's office, I think Keith was in the manager's office and I think um, DJ Gerald Johnson, I think uh, if I can remember somebody else was in there um, and we're just kind of hang, hanging out and watching the game unfold from there. And, you know, we're just sitting there and, and we didn't move because the game was starting to unfold, you know, kid, kid didn't make the last out and, and there you go by from there. It, it just goes forward from there. And, so many people always blame Buckner for the play, but I always think about Girardi. He couldn't get anybody out. Stanley couldn't get anybody out. And they allowed us to get back into the game. And I just remember the play. Mookie hit the ground ball and, and saw Billy Buckner try to beat Mookie to the bag, but missed the ball. And, and there was the excitement. Ray comes around the bag. And, you know, it, it, it was just a f- unbelievable way, you know, to, to win a ball game. You know, when, when, when you think about who we were in that season and where we was at, and we're like, oh, is it going to go down like this? But we never gave up. That's what I love about that 86 bat team. I don't care whatever game we was in that year, we never gave up. You were going to have to beat us. You were going to have to close the game out to beat us. We had a lot of comebacks, and th- those that was just one of the comebacks right there of game six You know, for us to be able to come back because we eventually have to come back game seven too and win that at the end of the day. Yeah, and, and this was a long time ago, but I'm curious, uh, you know, because there was that runway that players would go from from the clubhouse down to the to the dugout. When you guys win that game, did you run into the dugout, or do you, were you greeting people as they came through the door? We just greeted them when they came through the door. We knew we were alive again. We had a chance, to, you know, for Game Seven, and we was all excited about that. You know, it was just a complete team effort. You know, and like I said, that that team that year. I, you have to look it up, Buster. I don't know how many times we came from behind to win a ball game. And to see it in that atmosphere really gave us the hope that we can go out and we can be champions of the 86 year. Last one. What are the reunions like when you guys get together? Because, you know, you know, <laughs> some of the personalities have clashed for the years, most notably recently, Lenny Dykes or Ron Darling. When you guys all get together, what's that like? That's pretty cool. I mean, a, a lot of guys are, are looking, you know, at, uh, at at each other, you know, because some guys are different. They look at me, well, I'm a different person. They look at me and goes, wow, your life is so different, <laughs> you know, from where I was and who I am today. And, you know, I just, I, I just kind of love the guys. I love seeing the guys. I think all the guys, we love seeing each other because in, in reality, you only get one shot, you know, to be able to play professional sports and uh, opportunity uh, that we had of the 86 match was an incredible opportunity because I think a lot of times people don't realize that we had to fight back so much in the playoffs and and in that series against the Astros. And then we had to go in against Boston and we were down and we had to fight our way back to come back and win. And it was just a year of, uh, of us to remember how good we really were. And when we see each other, we always say that, guys, we were pretty good. When you look at teams today, and, and you think about teams today, how they can't, you know, they can't get over the hump. They can have all the talent, but they can't get over the, get over the hump. Uh, we were a multi-talented team, but we were able to get over the hump and, and win. 
All right, Straw. Well, I always love talking with you, and I'm always so happy for the journey that you've made. Well, thank you, Buster. I appreciate that. It means a lot to me. And it's always great to talk to you and glad that things are well with you, my friend. Vivid Seats wants to get you to the games you love this spring. Experience every pitch, assist, and game-winning shot live and in person. And the best part? Each transaction is a step toward a free 11 ticket with Vivid Seats rewards. Score unbeatable perks like free tickets, surprise seat upgrades, and annual birthday deals. As the official ticketing partner of ESPN, Vivid Seats is offering you $20 off your first $200 ticket purchase with Code Baseball. That's Code Baseball. Visit VividSeats.com or download the app today. Vivid Seats. Experience it live. Dogs are an important part of our lives, and keeping them protected is a top priority, especially against nasty parasites. That's why you got to check out NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus chews provide one-and-done monthly protection that kills fleas and ticks, prevents heartworm disease, plus it treats and controls roundworms and hookworms. That's a whole lot of protection packed into a delicious beef-flavored soft chew designed to make monthly dosing easy and enjoyable. So the next time you're at the vet, ask about NexGuard Plus Chews. They're the one-and-done monthly parasite protection you want for your dog. Used with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting preventive. This is the Numbers Game with Sarah Langs. Sarah Langs, a reporter and a producer for MLB.com. We always love having Sarah on. Good morning, Sarah. Hey, Buster. How you doing? I'm doing great, but I don't think your day is as good or my day is as good as the day your mother's having. <laughs> you have described yeah. her often on the podcast about how she's a very anxious Giants fan. Well, last night, the Giants clinched a playoff spot. They're the first team, they're the biggest surprise team in baseball this year. They clinched a playoff spot. So I emailed you early this morning that I wanted to see if your mom would come on and join us. And she is. Are you excited? <laughs> yes. No, I was so excited when I saw that email from you. I'm so glad I saw it in time to give her a couple calls and get her to come on. Thank you so much for asking. I mean, I have talked about her. Anyone who listens to this podcast, especially this year with everything the Giants have been doing, I feel like I've mentioned her a lot and I was so excited for her last night. I mean, I, I described when we went to that Giants-Mets game a couple of weeks ago, a lot of my uh, fandom these days is really just hoping for good outcomes for her. So really, really cool to see the Giants do that last night. Lizanne Porofsky, congratulations on your Giants. Well, thank you so much. And thank you for the honor of joining the two of you for a couple of minutes this morning. I, I'm incredibly excited and, and really proud of my team. You know, I've followed them since our family relocated with the team to the West Coast uh, in uh, 1958. And um, I just have really kind of rolled with the Giants. Their ups and downs have been a little bit of a, uh, you know, sort of paradigm for the ups and downs of life. And I'm just very, very happy that there's a huge up for the team and, and for me right now. So we had a debate 
uh, yesterday with Tim Kirchin about the Giants, uh, whether they should celebrate with Champagne after clinching a playoff spot versus clinching the National League West. They clinched with Champagne last night. How do you feel about that? Yeah, I found that to be extremely interesting. And I dedicated quite a bit of time to, to thinking about it. So on the one hand, uh, we shouldn't celebrate this. They could, in reality, be one and done. And as a sort of negative, superstitious fan, I, I certainly recognize that's a possibility. On the other hand, this is really an enormous achievement. This is like a completely different team than before. And they did it in such a wonderful way. The transition was in some ways seamless. And the the whole vibe of the team is... Um, is very special. And I think that this this particular clinching and how resounding it is and how early it is, um, it really kind of celebrates the diversity in baseball, how you can create a different team, how that team can really defy the odds in so many ways, and yet it can come up on top. So I do feel it's okay to have the champagne. Um, I, as a superstitious person, of course, I, I worry about what that means about winning the division against the juggernaut that all of you um, have correctly discussed the entire year. But I, I'm okay with it. I think it was a good thing. I'm, I'm very happy for everyone involved. All right. You are a scientist. Describe your work in science and then square for us your work in science with your superstitious nature. Well, thank you. I'm a physician scientist. Um, I work on um, antibodies and vaccines, and I've done that for many, many years, largely in mice. I've been interested in how uh, the antibody response to different things that make us sick, uh, cause pneumonia and meningitis, how those antibodies um, are formed and how they work. And um, this has been a very rewarding career. Uh, when the pandemic hit, I am also the chief of the Division of Infectious Diseases at Montefiore. Um, we pivoted as infectious disease doctors to um, uh, help with the pandemic. And uh, one of the things that I did was I took on for the first time research in people and have been working on clinical trials of convalescent plasma as a treatment for COVID-19. Um, so <laughs> there are a lot of parallels between being a scientist and being a fan. Firstly, there are um, ups and downs that are completely unpredictable. Um, and I would say that uh, there's just passion. You know, fans are really passionate and scientists um, are really passionate people. And I think that there is a common thread in that passion. Um, to, um, you know, to do good. <laughs> and I think that um, in sports, there's um, brings a lot of joy to our society. Overall, these endeavors uh, do a lot of good. And so I see a lot of a lot of parallels there. Dr. Porofsky, congratulations. And <laughs> thanks you. for joining us. Well, thank you for having me. It's a great it's a great, great honor. Thank you so much. So, Sarah, you heard your mom's description of uh, her superstition versus the science. What'd you think? Oh, my gosh. I, I never actually heard the description of it. And, I, you know, I was mentioning before my grandmother 
uh, her mother used to always say, and my grandmother was a baseball fan, but she kind of became a baseball fan later in life in the last maybe 10 or 15 years of her life. And earlier on, before she was a fan, she used to say to my mother all the time, how are you a scientist and also superstitious? It, it just doesn't really compute. So interesting to hear a description of that. But I thank you so much for having her on. I mean, just <laughs> really exciting moment. She is, again, very superstitious but she loves the Giants very much. And I'm so glad she has them to watch and follow just throughout all of these years. So really, really exciting day. Yeah. And it's really cool that you guys get to share that, uh, share that passion for baseball uh, in the way that you do. Let's talk about Adam Wayne, Wainwright last night. He had another terrific game. It feels like, and I think uh, Gary Cohn said this on the uh, Mets uh, broadcast last night, it's like Adam Wainwright and Yadier Molina have been haunting the Mets forever. Oh, my gosh. I mean, it really is. And I don't know if you saw Wainwright's quote after the game about this one at bat against Jeff McNeil late in the game with uh, the bases loaded. He, he he kind of alluded to, of course, the famous uh, Carlos Beltran at bat at the end of uh, game seven of the 2006 NLCS. And he said, you know, I, I wanted to give the Mets fans a little bit of a throwback. They wanted to see me throw a curveball right there. He threw two curveballs and a changeup. And, you know, I, I thought that was one of the best quotes I've seen all year. And I paraphrase it there. But, you know, he's having an outstanding season. And his approach to the game and just the way he approaches every day, those quotes, everything else just puts it over the top for me. I mean, I can give you numbers. He has the most uh, seven in, tied for the most seven inning starts of anyone in baseball this year with Zach Wheeler, which is just incredible. Zach Wheeler's a pitcher in the prime of his career. Adam Wainwright turned 40 a couple weeks ago. And for him to be going out there doing that. But for me, it's just the joy and everything else that we see with him and Yadi Molina. I mean, the fact that Yadi homered in that game when they were celebrating their 300th uh, battery mate day together, all of that. I mean, they've just been there against the Mets and just against everybody in the National League for so, so long now. Wainwright seeking to become the oldest pitcher ever to lead the majors in wins. Early win in 1959, Warren Spahn in 1960, both did so at the age of 39. As you said, Wainwright trying to do it at age 40. Let's talk about the Blue Jays. (laughs) You know, this morning in a morning note that we get, Sarah, uh, I'm sure that uh, you guys probably have one of these at MLB.com. Did just all these notes about the superlatives that the Blue Jays are putting up offensively. It's just insane. I mean, it was really encapsulated in they had the doubleheader where, of course, in the second game of the doubleheader, they were no hit into the seventh inning, which was the final inning of seven inning scheduled game. And they ended up scoring 11 runs in that inning. And then the next day on Sunday, they scored all of those runs in the first three innings. They set a record for the most runs scored in a four inning span, surpassing the famous 30 to three game and a game from 1922. And it's just incredible. I mean, this is really what we've been waiting to see from them all year. I mean, they've been scoring a ton all year for sure, but it's really working for them on all cylinders. The bullpen has not been an issue because they've been scoring so many runs. And sure, a lot of this was against 
uh, teams like the Baltimore Orioles, but now they're playing the Tampa Bay Rays and we're still seeing this happen. I mean, they beat up on Ryan Yarbrough last night. Ryan Yarbrough is a great pitcher. Ryan Yarbrough was not starting. He was coming in as kind of the bulk guy in an opener situation. I was shocked to see him give up all of those runs. I mean, you know, I follow some Blue Jays reporters on Twitter and also, I guess, some fans or, you know, radio guys, whoever they uh, may be in terms of their uh, allegiances or objectivity. And they were all saying, oh, we need to score early here because once Yarbrough comes in, we're not going to be able to score. And instead they end up, and I think it was 8 nothing when he finally got removed. So it's just so much fun to see. And I really, really want to see this team in the playoffs. And it feels like we're going to. I mean, they're up to 70% playoff odds. It was 5% on August 27th. Uh, the Blue Jays have 36 homers and are batting 331 in 13 games in September. They're the first team in modern Major League Baseball history to hit 36 plus home runs and bat 330 or better over any 13 game span. And you're right to point out, Sarah, that you know the context is important. You're facing the Orioles, uh, you know, a team that during the winter time they designed, uh, you know, their roster to fail. And so we have to keep that in mind. It's really bad pitching on the Orioles' part. But I think the Blue Jays are seen by everybody as being a really dangerous team going into the postseason. Uh, I, you know, I I know we have a bleacher tweet coming up about this. Uh, if you're the Toronto, excuse me, if you're the Tampa Bay Rays and you're the number one seed and you know the Blue Jays are going to be in the wild card game, I'm guessing you're rooting for the other team. What do you think? Absolutely. I mean, we saw last night and I think we're going to continue to see throughout this series. I mean, they just really have the ability to bludgeon teams. And I think that the Rays have, they've been a great team all year. We're talking about them. They're probably the best team in the American League. But their offense, especially without Wander, they're getting on base every single game, is a little bit spottier. And I just don't know if there's another team, maybe the White Sox when they're really on, but if there's another team that can match the Blue Jays offensively in this way, and if you can't match them that way, it could be 8 nothing in the third inning and you're not going to win the game. And that's basically the strength they've been winning on, and it's been working. And it's different in the postseason. You're seeing better pitching, whatever else. But, I mean, this is about uh, – they're playing the Rays right now. This is among the best that they're going to see, and they're still doing this. Yeah, the comps in other sports I was thinking of and watching the Blue Jays in recent days. Uh, remember the greatest show on turf, the old, uh, the old Rams uh, with Marshall Falk and Kurt Warner, and the question was whether any team could score at their pace that they were racking up yards and touchdowns. Uh, in the NBA in recent years, the Golden State Warriors, once they yeah. start jacking threes, you know, yeah. the question is going to be, can anybody score with them? And I feel the same way about the, the Blue Jays as we move forward. I got a couple more quick ones for you. Uh, the Boston Red Sox last night, they lose the Seattle Mariners following an error by Carl, Kyle Schwarber uh, playing at first base. The Red Sox, I mean, after every game, Alex Cora is asked about the defense and he says all the right things. But I don't know how you really change what they have. How bad has the Red Sox defense been this year? Really, really bad. I mean, it's interesting because, you know, you and I talked about this. I'm pretty sure right when that yep. Schwerber acquisition was made and we said that, you know, they're not going to be able to put their best fielding team forward. And, you know, it's very interesting because I think that if you look to the Red Sox when they won the World Series, they were a great fielding team. I mean, that was a big part of it. And I, I, I know that that's something that Alex Cora definitely prided himself on managing a team like that. This team has minus 37 outs above average in total outfield and infield this year. The next worst 
is the Reds at minus 28. So they are nine negative outs above average worse than any other team. That's a stat cast metric. If you look at uh, defensive run save, it's going to be similar. And, you know, just to see this team and we saw them early in the year, we didn't know exactly where it was going to go. I think we thought some of the team was a mirage. And these are the reasons that people were saying things like that. This has been an issue all year. It's, you know, uh, compounded by the fact that now they have someone like Schwarber playing first, but this has been a problem for them all year. The Yankees also having defensive issues. We saw it on Sunday Night Baseball. You know, they have Clark Schmidt starting his first uh, major league appearance in 350 days. And Glaber Torres uh, fumbles an easy ground ball. And Clark Schmidt winds up throwing a lot of pitches and giving up runs. And it really put the Yankees in a bad place. And so on Monday morning, Aaron Boone announcing that Glaber Torres is done at shortstop. They're moving him to second base. They're putting DJ LeMahieu at third base. Uh, they're, they're sliding Gio Urshela over to shortstop. And let me tell you, uh, I DJ LeMahieu is not a great fit at third base. And Urshela, I think he's better than Glaber. At shortstop, he's certainly more confident defensively, and I think that position will improve. But that tells you uh, the fact that they're uh, having you know that island of misfit toy situation where moving guys to places that they're not accustomed to playing tells you how bad Urshela was at shortstop. Absolutely. I mean, you know, I think it's kind of we'll see if the Yankees end up making the playoffs. It's been this crazy roller coaster we've been following. But the main thing I thought of when I saw those quotes from Aaron Boone is that, you know, when the Padres fired their pitching coach a couple of weeks ago, we sort of had this conversation of playoff teams are not usually firing their pitching coach at the end of August. Similarly, I don't think that playoff teams are usually moving their previously star young shortstop off a position on September 12th. And I think anyone who's watched the Yankees all year and the last few years could see that Gleyber Torres was not good defensively at shortstop. I mean, this is not a surprise to anybody, but needing to make that change, announce that change, and as you said, still not be in a great spot defensively, even by moving him off, is you know really not a spot that you want to be in when you're fighting for the playoffs. And, you know, your point about LeMay, is completely right. I mean, he's been about league average in his sort of uh, minimal time at third the last two years, but he hasn't really been plus at third base in about three years. And he was a lot younger then. And I think that that is going to play a role. You know, I think there's a lot of calls for, you know, if Andrew Velasquez comes back, if he's okay, having someone like that at shortstop, but these just don't seem like conversations that a playoff team is having on September 12th and 13th. Yeah, no kidding. It's less than ideal. That's for sure. Uh, Thanks, Sarah. And thanks for uh, bringing your mom onto the podcast today. Of course. Thank you for having both of us on. Really, really appreciate it. Bleacher Tweets. Alrighty, Buster Bleacher tweets for a Tuesday. We've got Hirsch Renman baseball at real Hirsch 21 Hirsch writes in as a Canadian and proud Blue Jays fan. I apologize for absolutely nothing for absolutely nothing. The destruction of the Jays placed on your lowly Orioles love the podcast and expect plenty of Jays love from you and Buster in this wild card race. I wouldn't expect you to apologize, Hirsch. I, uh, you know, would I would rejoice in the same thing if the Orioles did that to the Blue Jays. So I don't, I don't, I don't hold him, uh, you know, accountable for anything. Yeah, as we're going through this, I'd say this. Um, you know, the Blue Jays have been amazing. We've been talking about how dangerous they they potentially were all year if they could get this lineup together. 
And it's also, let's face it, an indictment of the strategy that the Orioles have, have used this year. Would you agree with me, Taylor? Of course, of course. We're going we're gonna to bang on them every day here. The one team we do hate on this podcast is the Baltimore Orioles. No, I don't hate any team, okay? I don't hate any team. I, you know, just uh, critiquing the strategy for what it is. That is fair from your perch. Uh, the Blue Jays fans were out in force here uh, talking you know, wanted to hype up their team. Cody Matthews at Cody V. Matthews wrote in, I know and respect how good the Rays are, but do they want any part of the red hot Blue Jays in a five game series through one game? I think the Rays uh, don't want that smoke from the Blue Jays. We've got a couple more. They've got two more games in the series, and then they have another three game series uh, in Tampa in about two weeks. So uh, we're going to get to see these teams a lot. How do you think they they fare in a five game matchup, Buster? Now, I think that if you were to give true serum to the Tampa Bay Rays people, if we go through the wild card game, let's say the Blue Jays are one team and the Yankees are another team or the Red Sox are another team. I think if you gave true serum to the Rays people, they would be rooting against the Blue Jays. Oh, yeah. <laughs> they want the Yankees, man. <laughs> I don't think anybody. Well, I mean, I, look, I think that the Rays have, have deserved their spot in the standings. Uh, they're a confident group. They believe in what they do. But they're not idiots either. Everybody sees how dangerous the Blue Jays are. Uh, all right, let's go to Andrew Stout at Thomas A.C. Stout. Andrew writes in, oh, Taylor, Wayno will not stop ascending into the NL Cy Young discussion, leading the NL in complete games, second in wins, and innings pitch top 10 in most categories. And he's 40 years old. I don't think Wayno is going to ascend to that top spot of the NL Cy Young discussion, but we can have a, a little discussion about him. Well, and I was talking with Sarah about how amazing he's been, and that's tremendous. He's not going to finish first, second, and third. If you want to talk about discussion for fourth place in National League Signing Award, yes, he's nice. right in the middle of that. Participation trophy. Love it. All right. Oh, dude, come on. Listen to you. You're, you're dropping these bombs on the way out, and I got to qualify it after you get done. Uh, just throw me out in traffic, Buster. It's fine. I'm used to it. <laughs> Hashtag Bleacher Tweets on Twitter. Thanks for writing in, everyone. That's it for today. My thanks to Daryl Strawberry, to Sarah Langs, and to Taylor. Have a great day, everybody. Thanks for listening. Stay safe. And remember, hate and inequality based on skin color is something we need to fight against every single day. Thanks for listening to the Baseball Tonight podcast. If you're playing fantasy baseball, check out the Fantasy Focus podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. The Baseball Tonight podcast. Dogs are an important part of our lives. That means protecting them from parasites. Ask your vet about NexGuard Plus, a Foxaloner, Moxidectin, and Pyrantal chewable tablets. NexGuard Plus Chews provides one-and-done monthly protection against fleas, ticks, heartworm disease, roundworms, and hookworms. Plus, they're delicious and easy to give. Use with caution in dogs with a history of seizures or neurological disorders. Dogs should be tested for existing heartworm infection prior to starting a preventive. Ask about NextGuard Plus Chews.